Hello, everyone. Welcome to the weekend show. Bible Discovery is the weekend show where we, you know, on Bible Discovery TV, through the daily show and with the Bible guide, we are going through the Bible in a year this year. But because we have to go so quickly, there's a lot that we don't get to cover on the daily show. So hence, the weekend show. We also love to take your comments and questions and discuss them and try to answer them here as well. So with that in mind, Matlock, what scriptures were we supposed to read this week? So where are we pulling <laughs> our topics from? Yes, we're pulling our topics and our questions from Luke 3 to Luke 18. Right. Now, most of these questions, of course, are related to a variety of different things, not just one thing in particular, because we're dealing with the, the stretch of Luke here, the, the big chunk of Luke. Mm -hmm. And they pertain to things, whether or not, you know, you should have faith in Christ or faith of Christ. Mm -hmm. Should we love Satan, the one who persecutes us the most? And things of that nature. And also our big question is a viewer question. So stay tuned for that one, because it's big, it's long. So that's about it. <laughs> yeah, okay, Matt, well, I have yeah. a question for you to yeah. kick things Go off. Ahead. This sure. is a viewer question from Ronaldo. It's from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, and it says this. I'm watching your program and wondering about the message to love your enemy. My number one enemy in my life is Satan. Does that same recommendation still apply? Right, okay. Uh, I'm just going to say off the cuff, no. <laughs> okay. No. You, you No, yeah, just no. Yeah, you do not love Satan period. Okay. So you start there. Okay. Now there's, it's funny how there's a huge debate going on right now in terms of how, lo how does love work and how should we apply stuff like that in Twitter and all of these things. So I'm not going to get too, in too much detail, but long story short, when it regards to Satan, no, you don't love Satan. Satan's irredeemable. Satan just wants to destroy you. There's nothing that, that can come about it that, that can be good about mm -hmm. loving Satan. Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying. There is verses like Matthew 5, 44, yep. which talk about love those who persecute you, right? Pray for yeah. those who, right, who do wrong to you. And um, when you think about that, you're like, okay, yes, because what does it also teach the Bible? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and spiritual uh, powers and principalities. Sick. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's the spiritual dark forces, right? The, the, the prince of the air, Satan himself, right? So that's our enemy. Yeah. And, and the humans are humans are being corrupted by that unknowingly, unwittingly a lot a lot of the time. Yeah, the hatred of fellow human beings. Exactly. People made in the image of God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean when you look at the context of Matthew 5, uh which 43 says you have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that's nowhere in the Bible, but it may have been a teaching at that time. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So clearly there, Jesus is talking about human people. He's talking about people that it would matter if the sun rose on them or if the rain fell on them, which, I mean, Satan, he doesn't eat like us. He doesn't have a physical body like us. It doesn't matter if the sun rises on him or if rain right. causes his crops to grow, right? Because he doesn't need crops uh, to sustain him. But uh, human people do. And Jesus is living in a time period where the the Jews are being ruled over by the Roman Empire who conquered them violently, right? So they have great enemies. And, and I mean, in today's um, reading, which is this week's reading, which is where this question is coming from with the parable of the Good Samaritan, that was that was one of the points of the Good Samaritan is that um, is, is it's illustrating who is your neighbor because there's this idea that just these people that are in an allied relationship with us or a familial relationship with us 
are our neighbors, Jesus is saying, no, 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 anyone can be your neighbor, even those whom you perceive as your enemies, which the Jews did perceive the Samaritans as their enemies, and the Samaritans perceived the Jews as their enemies, uh, religious enemies. They believed different things about the Old Testament. You know, the Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was Mount Zion, and, and Jewish people believed that um, the the mountain of Jerusalem was Mount Zion. And so there was a very, very bitter and historically violent relationship between the two of them. So Jesus is speaking in a time of physical enemies and physical friends, and that's made clear by the context, Yes, I think, of the Gospels here. So um, Satan is not a neighbor. The, no, and and the the, yeah. the context yeah. also of loving your enemies. It's loving your enemies so that you may be like God. Right. Because God is kind and merciful to those who love Him and to those who hate Him. So right. it's about this idea of fostering God's characteristics in our lives and making sure that we're representing right. Him. And, and to be clear, in Luke ten specifically, it asks. Uh, you know, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? Mm-hmm. Because love your God, your Father, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's really important there is that there's different kinds of loves. There's eros, which is like romantic love. Mm-hmm. There's philia, which is like an affectionate love or even like a brotherly love. Think of the word Philadelphia or philosophy, which means love of wisdom. Uh, it's like this uh, affectionate love you have for like a brother, or, you know, or in Christ or an actual bloodline brother. And then there's also agape, which is a self-sacrificial godly love. And so there's different forms of love. Unlike today, we just have the word love. Yeah. And it's just kind of, it's right? They didn't have that. They just had, there's different kinds of love and they mean different things. Um, so none of those, however, could be expressed towards Satan in any regard. Mm-hmm. So you eros your wife or you love your wife romantically. You uh, you love a brother in Christ, philia, right? You agape, you the self-sacrificial love uh, for your neighbor, right? That's like that godly love. Um and so there's different forms of love there. You love your neighbor as yourself, right, equally. And I think that's that the basis is so important. Um, you can't love someone more than yourself and less than yourself. Uh, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so that, that creates a, a, a platform from which it is, um, uh, you know, you can write a, a, a political constitution around, essentially. And it also is a spiritual constitution. Uh, it can't be broken. Uh, all God loves us all equally, and therefore we love each other equally. Now you can talk about degrees, you can talk about the intensities, you can talk about these different things. I'm not going to get into that, um, but because I think the real because <laughs> that's too big. We're just dealing with Satan here. Satan's off the cuff from all those things. It's not listed. Um, it's not going to be beneficial to you. Humans are redeemable, right? They're in a power against. They're in spiritual struggles. Our goal as Christians is to help them come through these spiritual struggles, and you do that through love, through humility. Uh, through the courage of, of of Christ in you, and that you do that, you even chip away at that, uh, showing your love for people, so that even after a long period of time, someone pushing you away, that human starts realizing, hey, there's someone about this, there's something real about this person that I took for granted. They actually love people, and then they'll question themselves, do I love people like he loves them? And then they ask, how do you love people so much? And then you find out that it's actually Christ in and through your life. So that's my two cents. And I'll ask you the next question. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds right. good to me. Corey. Yes. All right. Here we go. Um, I'm on the wrong page. All right. This is regard, This is from Linda. It's regarding Luke 16, uh, verse 8. Ah, uh, yes. I was listening to today's Bible discovery, and I thought there were certain conditions where divorce was okay. So I guess supposing here in Luke 16, 
it comes across like divorce is, is, is never permissible. Yes. So Luke 16, verse 18, Jesus says this, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is not the only teaching of Jesus on divorce. I think if it was, that would be something. Uh, but it's definitely not. We see Jesus using very extreme language here. But we know from elsewhere there were exceptions. There were um, there were exceptions to the general rule. So the general rule of marriage is that divorce should not happen. And right. if it does happen and you remarry, you're committing adultery. So that's the general principle. But of course, there are exceptions to the general principle. We see this in Proverbs. There's exceptions to the general principle all over the place. But also, you know, we see in Mark 10, for example, where Jesus is brought into this controversy. So, so um, I mean, part of the first century context of this is that in the Jewish religion of the day, the, the Jewish legal system, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. He just wakes up one day, decides he doesn't like her. He sees another lady, he wants her more, and he doesn't want to become polygamous because they accepted polygamy as well. Though not all rabbis liked this or advocated uh, for uh, divorce for any reason or polygamy, this was accepted under Jewish law at the time. And so Jesus is dragged into this controversy. And uh, in Mark chapter 10, uh, a Pharisee asks this. And in, in verse 2, it says, and Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, so essentially what he's saying is, Moses didn't write this to you because he was advocating for divorce. No, it was only because of the hardness of human hearts that he allowed this. This is an allowance because of the hardness of human heart. This is not something that Moses advocated for or that God was somehow advocating for to Moses. And what does Jesus do? He appeals back to the beginning of creation, to the model relationship that God did to establish marriage in the first place, which was between one man and one woman for life, what God has joined, let no man separate. So that is the ideal, okay? Uh, and then it goes on, it, that's the context where this, this really extreme saying of Jesus uh, comes out, right? Because in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So privately, they're like, wait, Jesus, what? Yeah. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he's he's putting the blame on both because in, in some Jewish areas, it was in Jewish areas, it was only the man who was allowed to, but in Greek areas and Roman areas, the woman was also allowed to divorce for any reason. Okay, then... Uh, how do I know that there are exceptions to the rule? To Matthew that, 19? To that rule. I was actually going to just hop on over to Matthew 5. Sure. Um, Matthew chapter 5 gives us an exception, right? Matthew 5, I think it's 31. Yeah. Uh, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman 
commits adultery. So uh, that whole makes her is that a, a divorced woman was without provision in that culture. She needed to get married or else become a beggar or something like a prostitute, right? So he makes her, he's causing her to commit adultery. He's causing her to get remarried. So there's an exception there, uh, which was sexual immorality. So basically the idea is, except for extreme circumstances, divorce shouldn't be a thing. Now, I personally do believe that there are other exceptions to the rule, things like severe abuse. Uh, also, I believe are a legitimate exception for separating from your husband or separating for your wife from your wife. But I don't think it's an excuse necessarily to get remarried. This is still something that we have to take really seriously because Jesus took it seriously. And he pointed back to Adam and Eve as, as the archetypal marriage and, and what God wanted for marriage, right? So we still have to take this really seriously as Christians. It definitely shouldn't just be this willy-nilly, anyone can get divorced for any reason or ir yeah. irreconcilable differences and, and all of that nonsense that should not be a part of the church. We should take marriage very seriously. And, and to add to that, so even the even Luke uh, 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Yeah. This is not about the divorce itself. This is about remarrying specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So it, that's what's important. So the question pertaining to, I thought certain conditions where it's okay to divorce, that this is not pertaining to that. Mm -hmm. uh, divorce, right? Because uh, you said it's okay to divorce in, in certain circumstances. Yep. Uh, but And to add more to this about the remarriage part, for there are eunuchs who have, this is Christ, for there are eunuchs who have been uh, so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Mm -hmm. And that's after he's teaching this whole thing about uh, divorce and remarriage. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a pretty big deal. So, it's a pretty big yeah, deal. And look, yeah. look, like God has grace and God has mercy. And we see that even just with this exception that in the law of Moses, God allowed, he put an exception in there because of the hardness of human hearts, he allowed divorce, right? So there's what's allowed, what's an exception, um, and what the ideal is. And um, because we all know, and God knows that humans are messy and we're sinful and we're not perfect. So we have to we have to keep that in mind there there are allowances that are not ideal so we have to shoot for the ideal we have to um as as christians it's just what what god requires of us and and what is responsible as christ followers um i know this brings up a whole a whole can of worms but we don't really have time to get into yeah. it there's the ideal and then there's exceptions to the rule and the exceptions are always very sad and, but also too we have to keep bear in mind that we're say, they're saying that this is sin we're not saying this is the unforgivable sin. Everything can be forgiven. Absolutely. That's the beauty of Christianity. Absolutely. It's a, so it's like no matter you sin, you, whether you did intentionally or unintentionally, these things happen. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is always present. Yes. Right? If you desire to be redeemed, you ask Christ to forgive you, right? He will forgive you. Absolutely. So, and, and he can make horrible, he can make horrible, I mean, just just read the Old Testament. He can make horrible, sinful grimy situations turn out to be beautiful. Even Bathsheba, their son became Solomon. Even just adulterous relationship. Yeah, I was teaching preschool on Sunday and we were talking about we were talking about the the Joseph narrative, you know, where everything is wrong at the beginning of Joseph's life. Yeah. Even even to the fact that, you know, his father is is giving him preferential treatment over his 
sons. Yeah. You know, uh, horrible. Everything's horrible and messed up and sinful. And 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 there's slavery and and, and murder and lying to uh, their father and everything. And in the end, God works it out for his glory and for the salvation of everyone involved, not only Joseph, but also the whole family. Yeah. So God can take our sinful human mistakes and turn them out in the most beautiful way. It's just, it's just who he is. I agree. It's just what he can do. So All right, good Corey. things to think about. All right, Matlock, one for you. Let's do it. Luke I'm 17. looking at it now. Luke 17, verses 5 to 6. Here comes a viewer question from Karen. Karen says, hi, could you guys do a segment on faith in Christ versus faith of Christ? I heard a message on this, and I believe it is of Christ. He gives us a measure of faith. We can ask Jesus to increase our faith. <coughs> okay. So I'm going to give a really straightforward answer. I don't think there's a dichotomy at all, or I should say there's not either or here. I think it's both, and I think there's more. I think it's in, I think it's of, and I think it's through. Um, I don't, uh, if all of your life belongs to God, if all of you love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and body, and in spirit, to be fully sanctified, to be fully justified, if that's all of you, then I don't see a reason why it's not of, in, and through. Um, so yeah, I don't know who you're listening to have made it like it's not in Christ, it's of Christ. There's definitely precedent in the text for people believing in Christ or into Christ, right? It depends. You know, prepositions are a funny thing. They kind of change with each culture. Um, either way. Uh, so I don't see that there, that there's a problem with saying of Christ. Yes, you're right. There is a measure of faith and there's an increase of faith that is listed there, but it's also Christ living through you and reigning through you. And Christ living, indwelling you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That's in, right? You see what I'm saying? So I, I don't think it is a matter of having, of being against in or in against through. I don't think it's anything like that. Yeah. So long as, uh, I think there can actually be a danger in creating a, a, a verbal dichotomy of things that you can and cannot say verbally. Uh, because th- it's things that are helpful for like a modern audience. You, you want to say it a certain way so that people better understand you. But generally speaking, like when you like, there shouldn't be like a, a complete, you can't say it that way. Uh, otherwise, like you, know, you can't say you have faith in Christ. You can only say you have faith of Christ. Right. I think that that is like greatly splitting hairs when your whole life is dedicated to Christ. And at this rate, I, I don't think it makes a difference personally. Um, having said that, I think it's worth, it's worth digging and thinking about these things thoroughly through. Um, yeah. What are you, what are you going to say? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I was going to say that I, I think that yes, God can give us faith. Absolutely. But that doesn't get off, get us off the hook because faithfulness, trust in God, faith is essentially trust in God. Faithfulness is also grown in us. And we, we see this in Galatians five, right? With the fruits of the spirit. Uh, so Galatians 5, uh, verse 22, it's contrasting against like the, the, the fruits of living sinfully versus the fruits of following after God. So verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these things don't just appear overnight. They're called the fruit of the spirit, not like the miracles of the spirit, right? Not, not just the boom, you've got, you've got a fruit. Fruit grows. Um, it, it, it starts out as a bud 
you know, and, 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 and continues on through its, the cycle until it becomes a fully ripe fruit. So um, uh, we can absolutely, I think it's a very good idea to ask God to grow our faith and to give us more faith. Um, and, and, you know, God is made, when we talk about God helps us in our weakness, absolutely he can give us faith, especially when we need it most. He can give us faith. And, and, and the scriptures also talk about the Holy Spirit, you know, empowering us for these things and gifting us with these things and also interceding. So the Holy Spirit praying for us when we don't know what it is that we should pray. So we have a tremendous amount of help. That's not what I'm trying to say. But these are things faithfulness, faith in God, trust in God is something that will grow as we follow God. It's going to happen. So yes, it is a very good idea to ask for more faith, but also with this understanding that God's got us, he's got everything under control, and he's going to help us grow right. this as a natural outworking of our relationship with right. him. As you know someone more, you trust them more if they are trustworthy. And God is trustworthy. He's ultimately trustworthy and ultimately faithful. This is where we get the, de he's the definition of trustworthy and faithful. So as we grow in our experience with him, we will naturally grow in faith in him, in our faithfulness towards him and in our trust in him. Right, and that faith, she is right, that faith does come, is of Christ, it is a gift. Yes. So it is of Christ, right? But it it's is. also in Christ and it's also yes. through Christ. And it's, yes. It's everything, right? Agreed. So there's no reason, there's no dichotomy necessary. All right, Corey. Agreed. Let's move on. Sure. All right. Next question. Yep. Do you want to ask me or do you want, do you want me to ask you? Oh, definitely. I'll ask you. Let's just do it that way. Sure. What age will we be in heaven? Will children who died continue as children or will they be adults? It's from Costa. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, ultimately, I don't know. Uh, How do you not know this answer? <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. Ultimately. Okay. Okay, what I, I, I am unclear. I'm curious to see. Oh, I see. Okay, so this is stemming from Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. It, now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So this idea of trust, right? Fully trusting. Um, I do not know if children who died as children continued to be children. I think it would be a very weird thing if they continued to be children, personally, um, because because we see we because they're not fully developed, right? We know that they're not fully developed as humans. Now we can see even just physically that they're not fully developed, but also mentally they're not fully developed um, as as humans. And I think then it it adds very weird. If we say that everyone stays the same as they are when they die, it adds really weird things. Well, like, do we think that people who die when they're 105 and very decrepit and with diseases, did they stay exactly the same? In the womb. In the womb. Well, yeah, yeah. Then I was I was going to go to the to the to the opposite right. extreme. What about babies who are miscarried or aborted? Did they stay fetal in heaven? I don't think that makes much sense. So my suspicion would be that when God glorifies our body that the glorified body probably has a medium age of some sort. Um, like Adam kind of thing? Like Adam and Eve were maybe, created, Yes, like what, what, whatever whatever that age is with, that Adam and Eve were when they were created, probably that. Because I don't think, I think you get into like some weird stuff if you say that children stay the same age when they die. But hey, who am I? I'm, I, I, I don't know. That's just using logic. 
but I, I don't know. God knows. Well, Corey. So I'm sorry that I couldn't give more clear answers, but that's just my thoughts on it. Yeah. How, do you have any more thoughts? You're just dead wrong. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're that's, joking. I know. Yeah, I, I have, of course. I, I have no answer. I don't know the answer to this question. I would imagine that. I know, would imagine there's some sort of it, uh, median age ish of a yes, glorified body. I, yeah. Mm. Yeah. We'll find out. I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, I really have no clue. I really have no clue. Um, we'll know for sure when the day comes. We shall. But yeah, as I'm reading this question again, it's like, you know, you don't want to, it's one of those things where you don't want to tell someone, oh, definitely adult. Definitely. Oh, like Adam and Eve? Oh, 100%. You don't want to do that. Yeah. There's just things you can't do. I mean, do. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I think it makes sense know. too. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's better to the rest on the mystery. Yes. All right, Corey. Yes. Let me ask you the big question. Oh, okay. I haven't even read fully through the big question. It's so really big. Awesome. It's, it's a, a really, big, it's Big question. It's a big, big question. That's why I didn't didn't want to read in the beginning because I was like, it's just too big to read. Okay, let's do it. All right, ready? Yeah. Okay. This is from Gary L. I find myself short on biblical knowledge and wise counsel. Question at hand. Why does the church seem to ignore or downplay the Hebrew scripture? Messiah is foretold and promised there. God's standard for living is there. Love God with heart, soul, strength, and others is self-detailed. And defined in Ten Commandments and further detailed in the, the alleged 613 standards. Ignoring these seems to throw Jesus on the scene from nowhere and ignores the basis for his being, along with downplaying or ignoring the Ten Commandments and the 613 standards. Yes, salvation through faith in life, death, resurrection of Christ alone. However, the standards for living are restated in just two great commandments. While the law does not save, it does give the human mind the expectations of God and disallows our mind to determine what the two greatest commandments mean. I find the church's downplaying or ignoring these standards has created many of today's issues. For instance, slavery and perjury. If the church had just pushed the standard from Deuteronomy on kidnapping and selling others, slavery would have stopped in its onset, as well as a standard for those witness that lie in court and convict the innocent court system would be a bit different today. So back to the original thought. Why does church downplay Hebrew scriptures? It's like downplaying gravity or denying that gravity exists. Thanks for listening. All right. It's a big question. Yes, I am writing down notes that I don't forget here. So yeah, you keep talking. Um, You keep doing that. When I first read this question, I remember I was kind of like, well, throughout church history, it's not downplayed. Throughout church history. it's It's in fact, what happens is you find so many people who are, in fact, overplaying what they think is necessary to the extent that there's, like, big heretical wars that happen because everyone's yeah. pushing their own ends so harsh. You know, you just think of, like, um, the iconoclastic uh, uh, revolts against the icons where people were just fighting against that because they believed it was against the, the Second Commandment. So it's like, mm-hmm. they're, I, I don't think, like, historically... In the Christian church, maybe today, and this is where I made my mistake, is that you can make a great case that we've been downplaying the scriptures as much as maybe we've been applying them not necessarily appropriately. Um, At the same time, today's a very different story. I was looking at strictly historically. Today is completely different. People are downplaying the Old Testament. So anyways, that's just another... Yeah, yeah. I mean, fair enough. I think think that, look, I think because the Old Testament is hard. The Old Testament is hard to understand, and that's just a fact. It is, like, it's 
there are parts of the New Testament that's hard to understand because it was written 2,000 years ago in a culture and context completely different from our own. So there's a lot about the Old Testament that is extremely challenging to us because we don't live in that time period. We are so far removed from it. So a lot of times it seems like God is saying something that he's not. And so it takes a lot of work to read the Old Testament appropriately. What I am not saying is that, good on you, let's just ignore it. If anyone knows me, you know that I love the Old Testament. I find it fascinating. I find it mysterious. I find it intriguing. And uh, it is so fun. We are living in such a privileged time period where we now have so many cultural records from um, nations surrounding Israel that we can really dive into to understand what was going on in the time period, right? So I think like a lot of people, a lot of people, um, um, it's really easy to, to misunderstand what God is doing in the Old Testament. They'll read stories, like they'll read the judges and they'll misunderstand, like if God is talking about something that happened, if the Old Testament is talking about something that happened, it's not necessarily endorsing those things that happen. Sometimes it's calling them out as horrible, right? Without saying this is bad, which we would expect. We would expect from today's day and age, you know, if someone was writing a moral, uh, a, a moral writing, Treaties, they would write yeah. like, and Abraham also married Hagar, and that was bad. But the Old Testament doesn't say, and that was bad. It shows the horrible things that came out of Abraham and Sarah jumping the gun and throwing Hagar into the mix, right? So um, it's, it's more nuanced than I think we would like it to be. Uh, and it's also very harsh because it's, it's again, our culture is so, we are so uh, separated from death uh, and disease and warfare, generally speaking today. And the Old Testament time period was not, it was steeped in death and warfare. Uh, and so God deals with that culture on its own terms. So I really think there's this downplaying of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, one, just on the face of it, because it's difficult. Uh, you know, when you talk to a lot of uh a lot of Christians, at least in my circles, I grew up first in a Pentecostal church, then in a Baptist church, then in a non-denominational church. And I did find in my circles, in those circles that I ran in, uh, here in, you know, central Ontario, Canada, there was a tendency for people to be like, I love the New Testament. But I do not understand the Old Testament and I don't enjoy reading it. I think that's connected. They don't enjoy reading it because they don't understand it. It takes a lot of work right, to understand it. There are tremendous resources that can really help us understand the Old Testament. I'm thinking, you know, um, The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter, amazing for helping begin to understand the Old Testament context, like the ancient context of the Old Testament. Um, lots of great commentaries out there. So I think that's one reason. I think there is also a spiritual reason. I mean, when you look at uh, uh, certain segments of uh, Christianity today, denominationally, completely walking away from the Old Testament and saying that the God of the Old Testament is no longer the God of the New Testament. I'm sorry, uh, not to be a, not to be like a weird spiritual person here, but that there has to be spiritual implications to that. And Satan wants us to divorce the Bible. He wants Christianity to be a house divided. That's literally Gnosticism. That's yeah. literally what it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's dividing the word of God completely inappropriately. Yeah. Uh, so I think there is also a spiritual reason why people are walking away from the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's becoming unpalatable in our 
day and age, even just politically, right, and socially with all the different agendas that are going on, the Old Testament seems to be much harder than the New Testament because we tend to try to like, like uh, highlight Jesus's morality and, and, and kind of like socialism and downplay uh, all the connections that he has with the right. Old Testament. So I see where you're going there, Gary. You're right. so I've I, been ranting for a No, this long is time. good because I think that the difficulty people have is, uh, the, uh, this is he's, he's getting into a question that a lot of people have, like a lot of reforms and Calvinists will have this concern because um, even uh, uh, Christian nationalists too, like mm-hmm. what the, how much of the Old Testament is applicable today? Is it all one for one, right? right? Of course, but, oh, and how do we apply that? Right. And so, and so that's the difficult part. People I, are making the the waters really muddy, and I think it's very unfortunate. Right. Personally, and, I think it's so, very unfortunate. So for here we have: if the church had pushed standard from Deuteronomy on kidnapping and selling others, slavery would have stopped in its onset. Unfortunately, there's evidence that not necessarily in the Old Testament. Yeah, because people were using people use the Bible, Old Testament, and New to justify slavery. That's right. So and, it and wasn't to applied properly. Like misogyny, like like it's in there. Right. It, it can be in there if you misappropriate it. If, that's like, if you right. use it incorrectly, you can justify anything. But that's the same with any truth. So that's not about applying the Hebrew scriptures, you know, legally, because then you can yes. misapply it legally. But if and that but, was but that's think, what was happening. But I think Gary's point is I, I think Gary's yeah. point is 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 taken in that if people applied the word of God appropriately, there would have been more people fighting against these atrocities. Yes. Because we would have had gods, we would have stayed we when you stay true to God's salvation plan and when you stay true to God's word, you naturally begin to fight against the things that God fights against. And he's definitely against slavery in the, in, in the kind that we have seen in more recent history. That's right. And another example, he says, as well as the standard for those witness that lie in court and convict the innocent. In other words, in the Old Testament, it says, if you were to lie, uh, be a, if you were lying in court, basically, mm-hmm. you get the punishment that the person would have got if you were caught lying. So if, if you're saying this person hurt me, right, and you're just totally lying, just to convict this innocent person, then it, and, and and his consequence was death. Well, actually, now that we found out that you're lying, you get death. Mm. So so the the consequence is actually on you. So uh, what he brings up here is that if these standards were around, perhaps that would curb or weaken you know where uh, the amount of terrible things that are happening today. You know, more prescriptive judge. So, so again, it comes down to this question of how one for one do we take the Old Testament laws well, and how and how do they apply today? And that is a huge discussion. Yeah. There's so many people on like, this case. Keep in mind, so, though. So keep in mind, though. Yeah. The Israel of the judges had the Mosaic law. Yes. They saw miracles. Yes. They had recent manifestations of the spirit of God yes. and they had the Mosaic law and we still got the judges. Yes. We still oh. got the horrible time period. Like human nature is human nature. Yeah, it is. You know, Christ has come now. Right. And, 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 and now we have, we have more, uh, I think we have more available to us in the salvation plan of God, which is. Yes. Awesome. And I, I think then the question then becomes like, of course, the, and he acknowledges this yes. salvation through faith and life and death and resurrection of Christ alone. Yes. So it's really about how do these laws help mitigate the evil that's happening and help people better understand, create a platform for people to better understand the gospels. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, uh, is having stronger applicable laws that come from the Hebrew scriptures or just us prioritizing the Hebrew scriptures in general, even implying reinstituting festivals, stuff like that, getting this stuff back. Is that going to create a better culture 
um, that was going to help people, um, you know, better understand the gospel message to have salvation through Christ. Is that better for those who are weaker? You know what and I think that's we a, need? And that's, it's not a question of who's strong. It's a question of who's weak. You know what I think we need yeah. more than that? What's that? More than rules and regulations. We need people to actually know not only what the Old Testament said, but why it said it. Yeah. Why would we even go into trying to create rules and regulations if the general population of Christians, not the general population of Canada, America, or the West, right. just general Christians don't even know what it means when it's said. Right. Abraham or well, the Mosaic Law. Right. Or like we need to get back One, to, I'm with Gary yes. here. I'm like, we need to get back to preaching the entire word of God in context. Right. Rather than just the New Testament. Well, well, right, of course. But I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that because there's a difficulty applying the Old Testament to the new, to today's time, okay? Um, creating Christian society and Christian culture of those laws will help create an embedded culture of people willing to understand the context and the reason why these laws are in place. If you don't have some of those laws... They're, they don't know why the laws are in place. You're, you're appealing to something that is in nature, then it might right. be seared. So it's what I'm saying is, well, here's what I'm saying. Laws are helpful. They're not unhelpful. They're also not neutral. Having Christian laws are helpful for people. So I think that in terms of, in ter- <laughs> if I understand Gary correctly, is that if the church is focusing on the Hebrew scriptures, right, and, and, and these different things, and in, uh, for society itself, um, these laws will be helpful for the greatest number of people, for the weak in faith. Because really it comes down to the strong in faith will do what you're saying. The strong in faith will. We're talking right. about the weak in faith. And that's how, right, right which is the difficult <clears throat> I just part. Think, I just think that we've got our great commission. Yeah. We've got our commission. We know what we're supposed to focus on. We're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be focusing on, on creating legal laws. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm not right. saying there's not a place for that. What I am saying is we know what the church as a whole is supposed to be focusing on. Yeah. And that is preaching the gospel. Yeah. And and we know that historically that the church has flourished amazingly under very unhelpful, volatile, and even antagonistic government systems. Yeah. So we don't need a government system to preach the word of God. God doesn't need no, government systems. No, no one's systems. saying needing. God doesn't need government systems yeah. in order to help the weak in faith. But no Christ helps the weak in no faith. No one's saying needing. We need help the weak in well, faith. No, no, okay, right. Yeah. But that's what the argument is. The argument is creating a stronger Christian society that understands the Hebrew scriptures, right? That understands those things. I think before right? you can create a society, you have to create a church that understands the scripture. Christian society is be... the church. Christian society is the church. Okay. They're the same. Christian society and church, they're, they're related. A, yeah. You could have, obviously, you have people in church who are also not Christian that say they're Christian. Sure. There's nominal Christians everywhere. Right. Anyways, so I, so I think that there is a, a case that can be made for having this discussion. And, and it really comes down to, I, I don't think we've given Gary, of course, it's huge, a great answer. But yes, we agree with Gary. You, denying the Hebrew scriptures is like denying gravity exists. Agreed. At the same time, how does that apply is the question because there are rules that have been relegated out. Like the sacrificial system is no longer in place. Yeah, right. So, so. so then for it, Christ so, fulfilled it. Exactly. Yes. And so, and some of those things, like the Passover feast, have been replaced by communion. So it's really about understanding how that applies. And yes, I'm all for having a Christian society 
that is deep into the Hebrew scriptures. And even I, I'm for bringing festivals back. I'm for all these things. <laughs> but I'm not mandatory, these. not commanded, commanded for your salvation. No, just, no, yeah, I know. But I like, know you're not saying that. That's why I'm clear. But, but it helps you understand your salvation. It, can, yes. <laughs> it helps you understand it. it. Anyways. Anyway, Geary, thank you. Thank you for that very interesting question. It has provoked a lot of discussion. If you have any follow-up questions or follow-up points that you want us to discuss, please pop them in the comment section below. That goes for all of you. Thank you for hanging out with us today. And uh, send your questions or comments uh, for next week or the week after. Uh, and uh, until next time, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.